for the sun with the stars in the sky through your window at night you will know though your family sleeps close and you try not to doze your eyelids will close now you're home Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. My name is Mitch, and I will be your server this morning. For starters, can I get you anything to drink? We offer coffee, as well as four varieties of juices, as well as fine Pepsi Cola products, as well as the Eagle Has Landed iced tea. What's in the Eagle Has Landed iced tea? My understanding is that it's like regular iced tea, except with the added distinction of being imbued with the pioneer spirit of the inaugural moon landing, which I'm sure you're aware captivated the minds and hearts of our entire nation in the summer of 1969. How is iced tea imbued with the pioneer spirit of the inaugural moon landing? I believe it involves artificial flavorings and also colorings, but I will have to check with my manager. Okay, orange juice then. A fine choice. Orange juice is what my ex-girlfriend Maxine liked to order. Maybe it is what she still likes to order. I have no way of knowing. She lives out east and hasn't spoken to me in three years. Yes, we can make sure there is no pulp in the orange juice. I'll have your drinks coming right up. Welcome to Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. My name is Mitch, and I will be your server this morning. For starters, can I get you anything to drink? Coffee, of course. Sensible. Pragmatic. What better way to get the coals burning this early in the day? Oh sure, there will always be certain elements in the kitchen who will argue amphetamines, but these are men of tenuous moral fiber and limited discernment, men whose skillet-fried logic is not to be trusted. For my money, you can't do any better than a good hot cup of joe, rich and aromatic, strong and spartan, Colombian, with sugar and or creamer added for your preference. I hope I'm not prying, but I can tell from the absence of fear or desperation in your drink orders that you are from out of town, and I wonder what brings you to our humble neck of the woods on this gray and barometrically unpromising morning. Just passing through, of course, of course. Yes, I will be the first to tell you our town isn't the ideal place to spend an afternoon, much less one's life. We used to be known for our annual elm festival, but since the elms all died, the festival's sort of lost its luster. We also used to be California's number one producer of novelty hats, but the factory closed down last April, and now there are long lines of unemployed factory workers wearing beer-dispensing fedoras and remote-control sombreros to protect their haggard faces from the sun. The tar pits are still there, fortunately, but unfortunately they tend to be cordoned off with police caution tape, what with the record numbers of unemployed novelty hat employees suicidally driving rented Hyundais into them. Maybe today they will be open to the public, however. One never knows. 
there are some brochures by the front entrance in case you're interested next to the brochures for food stamps and clinical depression and the Hyundai rental agency. I'll have your coffees coming right up. Hello, thank you for calling Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. How may I help you? Oliver Closeoff. You wish to know if Mr. Closeoff is dining with us this morning. Well, let's see. Is Mr. Closeoff about 5'7", with a bum leg, and a facial tick, and a Stetson hat that converts decimals into fractions? No. Does Mr. Closeoff have a receding hairline, and a skin disease, and a yellow stained t-shirt that says, My other ride is your mom? No. I'm sorry, but I don't believe Mr. Closeoff is here, unless of course he is one of the many slump-shouldered, willow-thin, sad-eyed octogenarians who gather in the back by the jukebox, listening to scratchy, old-timey songs like Tell Your Wife I'm Sorry and Too Lonesome to Slop the Hogs as they stare out the window at the novelty hat-wearing indigents scouring the parking lot and surrounding environs greedily for edible weeds, animal carcasses, and spare change. Doesn't sound like him, does it? Well, if you leave me a number where I can reach you, I'll keep my eyes peeled for Mr. Closeoff, and if, by sweet serendipity, he should turn up at our restaurant, I shall corral him with great haste and inform him at once of your call. Thank you. You are more than kind. We value and treasure your call to Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House, and wish you a very pleasant day. Hello folks, here are your pulp-free orange juices, fresh-squeezed, vitamin-rich, Floridian. No word as of yet on the pioneer spirit of the inaugural moon landing and its alleged pervasiveness throughout the Eagle Has Landed iced tea, but rest assured that this matter is being dutifully investigated, as we speak, by Neil Armstrong's franchise number 287's Finest Minds, and also the line cooks, so hopefully we should have an answer for you by the end of brunch. Are you ready to order, or do you need some more time? Excellent. Let's start with a young lady. The egg sandwich of tranquility, of course. An exquisite choice. And you, ma'am? The Buzz Aldrin straight from the griddle combo. Would you like that with the bacon strips or the pork sausage links? The bacon strips, certainly. A local treasure, ma'am, if I do say so myself. Like a little taste of pig heaven in every bite. And you, sir, seated beneath the framed photo of Neil Armstrong riding a horse with no name to victory in the 1984 Belmont Stakes. I'm sorry, but the one small step for man meal deal has been discontinued, a matter unfortunately out of her hands, as in mandated by corporate, as in lawyers arriving in the kitchen earlier this month with briefcases handcuffed to their wrists. My sincerest apologies. Perhaps you might enjoy the Cape Canaveral-style griddle cakes instead. Note that they are described in our menu as being an interstellar burst of fluffy, unforgettable flavor. No, sir, you are not mistaken. The one small step for man meal deal is indeed clearly listed in the historic breakfast section of our menu, alongside an eye-catching color photo of Mr. Armstrong himself enjoying said meal deal at Neil Armstrong's franchise number 173 in Sugarland, Texas. 
what is not clearly listed is the additional mandate from corporate strictly prohibiting the printing of new, updated, factually accurate menus in order to cut ink and paper costs, which explains the meal deal's rather misleading post-mortem presence on the handsome laminated pages before you. So I can understand your confusion. I can understand your disappointment. I can understand why you doubtlessly consider our menu's historic breakfast section to be little more than a cruel, albeit attractively illustrated, page of lies. At the same time, however, until corporate mandates candor, integrity, and truth, our hands are pretty much tied with bureaucratic red tape in regards to the whole meal deal issue, so Mr. A's hearty laminated enjoyment of the now-defunct deal, alongside the gushing menu description of the deal's savory sausage links, delicate buttermilk pancakes, ooey-gooey biscuits at Al, is sadly going to have to be a lie we almost learn to swallow. Note that the griddle cakes also come with a trio of eggs, as well as hash browns. Why has the one small step for man meal deal been discontinued? Why is anything discontinued? Why, for instance, are there no more family nights at the tar pits? Why do people no longer buy novelty hats? Why do our town's birds no longer sing sweet, arresting melodies, but instead fall mysteriously dead from telephone wires, power lines, and desiccated elms? Why, when I finish my shift and drag my syrup-stained self into the parking lot, am I no longer greeted by Maxine, waiting for me in her daddy's long gray Oldsmobile, honking her horn and waving frantically and flashing her devastating smile, but by repo men, collecting from our customers their cars, motorcycles, RVs, pants, by apocalyptic cults, urging me to repent and make tax-free donations, by the police, questioning me in regards to yet another regular customer's Hyundai rental suicide, by the indigents, mumbling nonsense into their self-cleaning derbies, their coin-operated top hats, their Turkish fezes with the voice of Franklin Delano Roosevelt emanating from somewhere near the tassels. Why, when my father wakes up in the morning, does he no longer exhibit even the slightest desire to live, so that my mother has to forcibly drag him from their bed, across the carpet, into the bathroom, into the shower, and blast him point-blank in the face with frigid water, so he is mentally alert enough to accept and swallow the applesauce, mashed potatoes, banana pudding she spoons with no small effort into his mouth, then towel him off and drag him from the shower onto the toilet, so he can relieve himself with as little resulting porcelain and vinyl tile splattering mess as possible, then wipe him, shave him, apply his deodorant, his cologne, administer his heart medication, his proton pump inhibitors, his multivitamins, clothe him, kiss him, gently tousle his hair, plead with him to snap out of it, shake it off, fight, persevere, soldier on, kiss him again, scream, cry, curse, beat against the wall, break down, give up, cry some more, then, with near Herculean resolve, drag him across the puddle-littered vinyl, out of the bathroom, into the bedroom, and back to bed, so she can search for job openings on the internet, send out my father's resume, make email and phone inquiries, pound the pavement, follow leads, acquire contacts, wheel and deal, wine and dine, sweet talk, inveigle, finagle, and, once the opportunity arises, remove the scarlet nail polish from her fingernails, remove her blush, her lipstick, her wedding ring, her jewelry, her eyeshadow, 
scrub away any traces of designer knockoff perfume, tie her hair back into a ponytail, wrap her breasts in de-emphasizing bandages, and her face with thick, non-prescription glasses, practice a firm handshake, an alpha male gait, a deep gravelly baritone modeled after the voice of veteran actor Jack Palance, pace back and forth in the upstairs hallway, curse, pray, cry, cry some more, and then don a man's suit, a man's shoes, a man's cologne, a man's watch, a Freudian synthetic beard purchased from a theatrical makeup supplier during its Fat Lady Has Song liquidation sale, all so that she can assume my father's identity for job interviews in the hopes that when she finally is offered a position at a manufacturing plant, or a PR firm, or a defense contractor, or a slaughterhouse, or an adult video store, or a wholesale mattress linens and taffeta outlet, she will come home, show my father her copy of the required W-4 form with her expert forgery of my father's signature at the bottom, beneath the indicated number of allowances, and he will rise from their bed, take my bearded, defeminized mother in his arms, and look at her once more with eyes that recognize, affectionately, this cross-dressing woman before him, this woman who now brushes his teeth for him, this woman who with synthetic hair and spirit gum becomes him, this woman who so beguilingly and effortlessly conquered him, one chance night, at Love Her Heartbreak Karaoke, back in the heyday of novelty hats. The Griddle Cakes, a fantastic alternative, sir. Thank you for your understanding. I'll get your orders to the kitchen. Flickety split. Hello, folks. Here's your coffee. Are you ready to order, or do you need some more time? Wonderful. Let's start with you, sir. Yes, the Neil Armstrong classic. A marvelous choice, sir. You can't go wrong with a classic. And you, ma'am? The Mission Control Special with the fresh strawberries or the warm fruit compote and whipped topping. Ah, truly, you are a woman, to my heart. If you don't mind me asking, where are you folks headed after your brief sojourn in our fair town comes to an end? Down old Los Angeles way. Of course, of course. Hollywood. Movie stars. Plastic surgeons. Tiny dogs. Yes, I've half a mind to go there myself one day, but as for the foreseeable future, I've got my sights set on assistant manager here at Neil Armstrong's, what with the previous assistant manager driving himself into the tar pits in a rented Hyundai accent in the wee hours of Monday morning. Yes, I know, it's very sad. This black patch on my spacesuit indicates I am still in mourning. But, admittedly, it does present certain opportunities for the rest of us, who have toiled in our pressurized spacesuits and spheroidal dome helmets and moon boots for many years without medical benefits, or salary incentives, or invitations to the Neil Armstrong's corporate retreat in Plano, which I hear involves go-karting, and the limbo, and a well-stocked open bar. I realize this sounds insensitive. I realize it might rub people the wrong way. But, as the kitchen staff says, you have to break a few eggs, and beat them, and cook them at low to medium heat with onions, ham, bell peppers, mushrooms, diced tomatoes, and cheese, to make an omelette. Let's see, I've worked here for six years now, since my junior year of high school. I know, I know, even I have trouble believing it's been that long. It seems like only yesterday I was still a busboy, clearing tables, cleaning the floor, straightening and dusting the framed photos of Neil Armstrong on the moon in Apollo 11, 
jumping on an inflatable bounce house in Newark, New Jersey. Back then, my ex-girlfriend Maxine was still with me, and when my shift was over, I could always count on her to be waiting for me in the parking lot, engine idling, music blasting from her open windows, the greatest soft rock hits of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, accompanied by her shrill laughter, her honking horn. Back then, before the factory shut down, before the One Small Step for Man meal deal was discontinued, before Maxine left me for a college classmate out east, I'd climb in her daddy's Oldsmobile, which he called the Admiral, and which she called the Shark, and we'd gun it out of the parking lot with the Eagles, or Dan Fogelberg, or Captain and Tennille blaring from the speakers, and drive to the tar pits, where the people of our town gathered to toss away their loose change, and wish for brighter days. In those days, the tar pits were still a place of comfort, of hope, as advertised in the glossy brochures near our front entrance. People would park on nearby gravel, walk to the pit's edge with cups full of pennies, nickels, and dimes, and feed the tar like one might feed ducks pieces of bread, the pit feeders closing their eyes and wishing for winning lottery tickets, for big screen TVs, for renovated kitchens and four-person spas. All sorts of folks came to the pits, young, old, well-off, poor, dentists and janitors and lawyers and ex-cons, and after they tossed their change and made their wishes, they would spread blankets on the grass and eat picnic lunches, potato salad, cold cuts, cucumber sandwiches, and ice-cold lemonade. Maxine and I ate with them, feasting on Neil Armstrong leftovers, compliments of my associates in the kitchen, and when our food was gone, and our bellies were full, we'd stroll down to the pits with the change from my tips, and make our own wishes, closing our eyes, side by side, and throwing my gratuities into the tar. I don't know what Maxine wished for, she would never tell me, but in those early days, I remember asking the pits for A's on my algebra tests, for the giant to win the World Series, for Kurt Cobain to be resurrected, for some benevolent, deep-pocketed customer to leave me a thousand-dollar tip. These wishes never came true, of course, but I was young and hopeful, and so I kept tossing away my money, kept wishing. My first tar pit prayer to be answered, the only one, really, was the night I asked Maxine out, beautiful, starry night, when we were still just friends, and I threw away my entire day's earnings, paper money and all, closing my eyes and trusting my salary to the wind, wishing for Maxine to say yes. Later that night, in the back of the shark, she did just that, again and again, and in the leather Oldsmobile interior, my investment in the tar was repaid, many times over. When our town grew sadder and bleaker, mom and pops closing, Walmarts encroaching, novelty hat layoffs ensuring brisk business at the unemployment office, so too did the tar pits. People still came, but they no longer picnicked, instead tossing their currency and driving straight home, too anxious or despondent to enjoy French onion dip, carrot sticks, marmalade. They still brought cups, still threw coins, but now only pennies or funny money, novelty coins bearing the face of Ronald Reagan or Arnold Schwarzenegger, nickels and dimes too valuable to waste, even, especially, on a wish. There had been family nights, parents bringing their children to cook s'mores and corn on the cob and beans and weenies over open fires at the edge of the tar, but the family stopped coming, kept home by second jobs and painful divorces and the opiate glow of television. 
American litigators, Lewis and Clark, Miami, who can drive the fastest backwards. Instead, the pits attracted loners, drifters, widows and widowers, wishing not for remodeled kitchens and big screen TVs, but for a reversal of time, their jobs back, their wives back, their lives back. When Maxine left for school, I still visited the pits from time to time, but it wasn't the same without her. I would take the pennies from my tips and toss them into the pitch, closing my eyes and wishing for Maxine to reappear at my side, but it didn't feel like wishing anymore. It just felt like wasting money. Eventually, after the factory closed down, after our streets were swarmed by panhandlers and drunks and addicts wearing Panama hats that could play Frere Jaca and the Star Spangled Banner in all twelve keys, the rest of the town reached the same realization that wishing only made things worse and stopped throwing away their money, started throwing away themselves. First, there was the foreman from the Novelty Hat Factory, who ended a three-day meth binge with a fatal belly flop into the pits from an overlooking hill, a Christmas caroling pork pie hat still snug on his head. Then there was his grieving wife, who hijacked the hearse during her husband's funeral and drove him into the tar for the second time, and herself for the first and last. Soon, like a dam of humanity bursting, there were more, young men who had lost their way, middle-aged men who had lost everything, old men who had nothing left to lose, leaping and diving and driving rented Hyundais into the pits, and the local news added a regular suicide section to its evening broadcasts, in between sports and the weather. The anchors became experts at transitioning seamlessly from slam dunks and blocked field goals and wacky baseball bloopers to the self-destruction of human life, and then to warm fronts, cold fronts, five-day forecasts, and barometric pressure. By this time, Maxine was long gone, had stopped answering my phone calls, stopped responding to my letters, and now when my shift at Neil Armstrong's is done, I walk outside to find no one waiting for me but the novelty hat-wearing homeless, circling me like buzzards and begging for whatever I can spare for my tips. The tar is surrounded by caution tape. The shark rests on blocks on Maxine's parents' front lawn. My pennies remain in my hands, not going to the tar, not going to the homeless, not going to anyone, saved in mason jars beneath my bed for when my wishes no longer feel like a waste. I'll get your orders to the kitchen, lickety-split. Glowing lights on the tree and the presence beneath You've been dreaming sweet scenes
giant leap for mankind pancake house my name is mitch and i will be your server this afternoon for starters can i get you anything to drink water of course a shrewd choice especially in these times of economic turmoil why just yesterday the economic turmoil was such that our air conditioning quit working and we discovered a family of four living in our ventilation system they had been subsisting for several weeks on NutraSweet packets, lemon slices, and pancake batter, and had made bedding out of the insulation. Now, I don't know about you, but in times like these, I find it a great comfort to know that I can walk into any restaurant and be served a nice, cold, refreshing glass of water with not a penny in my pocket. I can quench my thirst, wet my whistle, satisfy my most basic biological needs with delicious fluoridated, chlorinated municipal water at no financial detriment to myself. Yes, it's good to know that even amid our town's complete economic collapse, in which parents attempt to sell their children on eBay, in which thieves steal wheelchairs from the elderly for the scrap metal, in which truck stop pokers add hidden fees and surcharges to even the most basic sexual acts to compensate for the rising cost of oil-based lubricant and latex, some things, thank God, will always be free. Oh, bottled water. That will be 350 plus tax. I'll have your waters coming right up. Hello, thank you for calling Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. How may I help you? Amanda Hugginkiss. You wish to know if Ms. Hugginkiss is dining with us this afternoon. Well, let's see. Is Ms. Hugginkiss about 14 years old and pregnant and prone to breaking out in tears while ordering three cheese omelets? No. Does Ms. Hugginkiss wear garish makeup and see-through leggings and make frequent unbecoming offers to restaurant patrons despite the sign on our front entrance that clearly says, no soliciting? No. Maybe if you described Ms. Hugginkiss's distinguishing characteristics, I would better be able to assist you in your search for the woman in question. For starters, what color are her eyes? Brown. What sort of brown? For instance, my ex-girlfriend Maxine's eyes were a warm brown, like milk chocolate, or expensive lacquer-finished wood. What sort of wood? I would posit walnut, or mahogany. The same brown one associates with unusually fertile soil, rich, earthy, 
the same Brown that one imagines must have inspired Van Morrison to write Brown-Eyed Girl in the months preceding the Summer of Love. Just brown. Okay. How about her hair? Black. Maxine's hair was also black, until she started dyeing it. She experimented with her hair often, both color and style, teasing it into updos, afros, towering bouffants housing quail nests and Civil War dioramas, Antietam, Gettysburg, the March to the Sea, a simple bob. No, I don't think Maxine ever had one of those. Oh, you mean Ms. Huggenkiss? Yes, of course. How about Ms. Huggenkiss's skin? White. Maxine's was brown, but not the brown of her eyes. It was dark instead of milk chocolate. It was ebony instead of walnut. Her teeth were white, though. Boy, were they ever. They were snow white. Wedding white. The white you see on toothpaste commercials and promotional posters in dentist's offices. It's that white that sticks most firmly in my memory. Even now, whenever I get a tooth pulled, or a cavity filled, or a canal rooted, I stare at those posters as cold metal painfully probes my mouth, and can't help but think of Maxine. But we're not trying to find Maxine, are we? We're trying to find Ms. Huggenkiss. Eyes brown, skin white, hair black and bobbed. No, I don't believe I see anyone like that in a restaurant. I am deeply sorry. I so wish that I could snap my fingers and say, Yes, that's her, next to the framed portrait of Neil Armstrong competing in Pamplona's Running to the Bulls, and seconds later you would be able to hear Ms. Huggenkiss's sweet voice replace mine on the telephone. But unfortunately, I cannot. It is not within the scope of my abilities. However, if you leave me a number where I can reach you, perhaps she will turn up at a later time, and I can notify you via the telephone, and you will hear Ms. Huggenkiss on the line, and all will again be right with the world. Thank you. You are most accommodating. I wish you more than luck. We value and treasure your call to Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House, and wish you a very pleasant day. Welcome to Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. My name is Mitch, and I will be your server this afternoon. For starters, can I get you anything to drink? How sweet is the Eagle Has Landed iced tea? That is an excellent question. I would say that it is sweeter than unsweetened iced tea. It is sweeter than grapefruit juice, and blood, and a mouthful of dirt. But it is not as sweet as, say, a refreshing Pepsi-Cola product, or a dripping honeycomb, or the kiss of a lover who's been chewing spearmint gum. You've never kissed someone who's been chewing spearmint gum? Why, that's very unfortunate. You should try it as soon as possible. You're a priest. My apologies, Father. How very discourteous of me. Let me then describe for you what it's like. My ex-girlfriend, Maxine, was a huge fan of a particular brand of spearmint gum called Professor Albert's. Professor Albert's was unique among gum brands in that it included short excerpts from master's theses and doctoral dissertations in every pack. Often, when Maxine picked me up from Neil Armstrong's, she would have just purchased a Professor Albert's from Bergman's Pharmacy next door, and it became a ritual for us to open the packaging together and for Maxine to read the academic text out loud into my ear 
as the radio played a favorite soft rock hit of the 70s, 80s, or 90s, and I ran my fingers along her skin, through her hair. I wish I could convey to you, Father, the anticipation I felt, the burning desire, as she whispered into my ear phrases like optimal frequency displacement duration and extracellular matrix production in monolayers of invertebral disc cells and Lagrangian coherent structures and transport in two-dimensional incompressible flows with geophysical applications, her voice low and sultry, her breath warm and fragrant, the sweet smell of spearmint wafting its way into my nostrils. No one could make bibliographic citations sound more erotic. No one could make the esoterics of academia sound sexier. When the excerpt ended, usually mid-sentence, she would fall silent for a long, long time, and the only sounds would be the shark's engine and the soft rock favorite, and Maxine's breath, warm and pulsating against my ear. Sometimes it would stay like this for an entire song, sometimes two, especially back-to-back Fridays when the radio would play double helpings of the Eagles, Kansas, Elton John, Desperado and Ticket to the Limit, Tiny Dancer and Candle in the Wind, and when she finally kissed me, Father, it, it's hard to describe, but you know how in the Bible, in the Old Testament, they refer to the promised land as the land of milk and honey? And as we've all tasted milk, and we've all tasted honey, we're aware that both, though certainly enjoyable, aren't necessarily so earth-shattering, flavor-wise, to warrant inclusions as the specials of the day in paradise. And yet, even still, we get the feeling that in the promised land, milk transcends milk, honey transcends honey, so that after our 40 years in the desert, we expect to find scores of men and women in long, flowing white robes, downing jugs of milk as if death-desperate with thirst, slathering their steaks and salads and latkes and lamb kebabs and faces and breasts and beards with honey, everyone emitting near-orgasmic moans of pleasure as their taste receptors are overwhelmed by stimuli more potent and electric and life-altering than we could ever begin to imagine. Well, kissing Maxine was like tasting the promised land. She was my milk and my honey. Father, I do not know what your experience with kissing was before you answered the sacred call of the cloth, but there are many different types of kisses. Kissers. Kissies. In films, you have no doubt seen some examples. The light peck. The adolescent tongue joust. The passionate lip suctions. Buildings burn and aliens hover and meteors hurtle toward the earth. But there are more, many more, than Hollywood or television would lead us to believe exist. There are kisses that make you think about the past, and the future, and poetry, and soft rock, and Shakespeare. There are kisses that make you think about sex, and commitment, and philandry, and boredom, and love. There are kissers who make contracts with their lips, treaties with their tongue, kissees who accept or reject or bargain with teeth and suction and saliva. There are kisses that stop time and pass it, preserve time and dismantle it, abandon time and restore it. There are kisses that make you think about neurochemistry. There are kisses that make you think about neoconservatism. There are kisses that make you think about the stock market. Father, what I want to convey to you is not which category Maxine's kisses fell into, because they fell into so many, but merely the fact that the sum total of all her kisses, the composite kiss, 
the three-year accumulation of God knows how much saliva and spit and spearmint still has the power, when recalled, to devastate me, to leave me completely incapacitated. Even now, if I accept a piece of gum from a co-worker and realize too late it's a Professor Alberts, the memory of Maxine comes flooding back. Every kiss, every soft rock favorite, every academic passage about flow cytometrics and organophosphorus acid anhydrolase and hypoxic acidotic cardiomyocyte, and I can't move, can't speak, can only stand catatonically still in my pressurized spacesuit and wait for my paralysis to pass. And even when I come to, when I regain my speech, my composure, my motor functions, she still lingers, still haunts me, as long as the taste of Professor Albert's spearmint lingers in my mouth, the taste of sweetness and bitterness, of fondness and regret, of milk laced with bovine growth hormone and honey artificially constructed by lab coat wearing scientists, their bioengineered ambrosia bottled and sold in the gleaming Walmarts of the promised land at 20% off with coupon while supplies last. So when I say that Maxine's kiss is sweeter than the eagle has landed iced tea, father, know that it is, unquestionably it is, but also know that the aftertaste is far more bitter and salty, and metallic, and sad. No longer feeling like iced tea, then. Diet Pepsi, of course. A shrewd choice. Delicious. Low-calorie. Carbonated. What more could anyone ask for? A garnish of lemon, of course. I'll have your drink coming right up. Hello, folks. Here are your waters. Are you ready to order, or do you need some more time? Wonderful. Let's start with you, sir, in the booth seat. The Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster Memorial Cheesesteak, of course. A perennial favorite. And you, sir, next to the framed photo of Neil Armstrong playing Danny Zuko in a regional theater production of Greece. The same. Very good. Great minds think alike. Is there anything else I can get you? The hostess's phone number. I'm sorry, but that is not within the scope of my abilities. How about an appetizer instead? There is a special on the garlic bread, and both the beer-battered O-rings and the John Glenn signature cheese sticks are exceptionally delicious. You just want the hostess. I understand, but again, I cannot help you. The seven digits plus area code that you seek are sadly not in my possession. I'm asked this question often, more often than you could ever imagine, and each time that I must inform my valued customers that I am unable to assist them, that despite repeated attempts to obtain the phone numbers of the hostess, the dishwashers, the absolute fox from the Department of Health who inspects Neil Armstrong's for code violations, I have been completely unsuccessful with my amorous inquests. It is with grave disappointment, with a dagger digging into my cold, black heart, that I let my customers down, that I fail to deliver on Neil Armstrong's promise of 100% satisfaction, of unparalleled customer service. 
But, in my defense, note that my inability to relieve the fairer sex of their contact information is in no way a product of my disregard or contempt for my customers, but is rather the result of certain handicaps unfortunately inherent with employment at America's fastest-growing space exploration-themed pancake house. For instance, my pressurized spacesuit is very inconvenient to clean, and so I often reek of weeks-old syrup and pancake batter. Also, due to staffing shortages, I often have to work both the afternoon and the night shift, and so by 3 or 4 a.m. my mental acuity is so reduced that any flirtation with the dishwashers is inevitably conducted in monosyllabic Neanderthal grunts. I do not know what methods you employ in pursuit of romantic connection, but I would posit that if you found yourself in my weighted, low-gravity compensating shoes, you would discover that your available options for approaching the opposite sex would be severely limited. Your come-hither stares would be ignored, your furtive glances would go unacknowledged, your surefire pickup lines would fall flat. You could try every trick in the book, pull out all the stops, shower her with compliments, lavish her with roses, memorize the romantics, utilize a wingman, fabricate a personal tragedy, borrow an adorable dog, achieve Schwarzeneggerian musculature, pretend to be an orphan, pretend to be Italian, pretend to be French, read self-improvement manuals, romantic comedy screenplays, articles in men's magazines with cover headings such as Is Your Girlfriend Hot Enough? and 101 Great Moments in Fellatio and How to Turn Her No into a Yes. But sooner or later, you would learn what I have learned, as presumably has Neil Armstrong, judging from the framed photo showing him loitering alone and in full astronaut attire by the punch bowls at a NASA alumni spring dance. Which is this, engaging in the delicate art of seduction in a pressurized spacesuit, spheroidal dome helmet, and moon boots is about as viable as traveling through outer space in an Oldsmobile. Yes, I will admit, my dating life has become rather barren. As of late, it's gotten so bad that I've become a nearly nightly regular of the Surgeon General's Bar and Grill. The Surgeon General's is where our town's most desperate and lonesome singles go to inhale secondhand smoke and guzzle overpriced beer and seek out sexual entanglement as a jukebox plays public service announcements about diabetes, exposed power lines, throat cancer. There are cigarette warning labels on the walls, and a floor-to-ceiling Hippocratic staff in the back, on which gaunt-looking strippers named after antidepressants dance. The waitresses and bar girls wear skimpy, cut-off hospital scrubs, and the many wall-mounted televisions broadcast live operating room footage of biopsies, vasectomies, colonoscopies, breast implantation. Everyone is too drunk and despondent to speak, and so we instead joylessly and artlessly make eye contact and hold up complimentary placards with pre-printed pickup lines. Come here often. What's your sign? If you were aspirin, I would take you every four to six hours. Understand that none of us ever dreamed we'd end up here, night after night, reflexively raising and lowering our placards like bolo tie-wearing Texans at a cattle auction, but the other available options are even worse. There are the Russian mail-order brides, who have lived in an abandoned Kentucky Fried Chicken down by the river ever since their unsatisfied husbands attempted to return them via the U.S. mail, bound with packing tape and swathed with commemorative stamps. 
there is GaragesaleOfLove.com, in which enterprising and loveless vendors offer dinette sets and futons and Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass Records in exchange for dates or kisses or a single conciliatory embrace. There are the truck stop hookers who, in these tough economic times, are forced to entice customers with clearance sales, holiday giveaways, contests and raffles for free hand jobs, blowjobs, flavored prophylactics. And then, of course, there's plain old loneliness, microwave dinner for one, calendar blank, cell phone silent, television broadcasting America's sexiest data entry specialists with the sound off as the radio plays favorite soft rock hits of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, summer breeze, the air that I breathe, my heart will go on. I'll get your orders to the kitchen, lickety, split. Hello, Father. Here is your Diet Pepsi with a garnish of lemon. Are you ready to order, or do you need some more time? The Mama Armstrong's world-famous pigs in a blanket. Of course. With the hash browns, Father? Good man. A side order you will not regret. Is there anything else I can get you? You wish to know about the indigent in the parking lot, sorrowfully staring at you through the floor-to-ceiling window. Of course. His name is Bill, once a co-worker of my father's, now, like my father, unhinged, unfit, unemployed. You are currently occupying his once-favorite seat. Bill's story goes something like this. Back in the good old days, when there was still family night at the Tar Pits, Bill belonged to that rare and anthropologically fascinating sub-subspecies of Homo sapiens sapiens known as the Neil Armstrong's regular, a creature known chiefly for its habitat of formica tables and vinyl-covered booths and its specialized omnivorous diet of pancakes, sausage links, maple syrup, and scrambled eggs. Bill, whose job at the Novelty Hat Factory involved applying propellers to thousands of remote-control sombreros idling lazily by on a conveyor belt, had been a Neil Armstrong's regular ever since a rough patch of heavy drinking landed him in AA in the early aughts, his nightly 12-step meetings taking place in the basement of a full-service bait-and-tackle shop called Teach a Man to Fish, located in the strip mall across the street from our restaurant. This same basement, it's worth mentioning, also was and still is used by AA's compulsion-busting cousins, SA, Sexaholics Anonymous, and NA, Narcotics Anonymous. It's no secret to anyone in town that a healthy percentage of our regulars are either fishing enthusiasts or are recovering alcoholics, sex fiends, or heroin addicts. So Bill was a recovering alcoholic and a regular and ate dinner at Neil Armstrong's every weekday evening at precisely 6 o'clock. This gave him a good hour and 45 minutes to decompress from assembly line monotony in Neil Armstrong's syrup-scented interior until he had to walk across the street to make his 8 p.m. AA meeting beneath Teach a Man to Fish. Because so many of our regulars were struggling with addiction, 
one day at a time, and they'd often say after ordering their waters, their refreshing Pepsi-Cola products, God grant me the serenity. Our regulars tended to be rather obsessive-compulsive with their dining habits, replacing their chemical lust for alcohol or opiates or orgasms with an equally intense but less socially stigmatized addiction to buttermilk pancakes, pork sausage links, warm ooey-gooey biscuits. There was, for instance, Pascal, a former dopehead who always ordered the Mission Control Special with the warm fruit compote and whipped topping every time, without fail, plus with the special instructions that the whipped topping be applied in seven discrete white dots resembling the named stars of the constellation Ursa Minor. There was Deborah, a four-month sober alcoholic who always ordered the Eagle Has Landed iced tea without the pioneer spirit of the inaugural moon landing, and the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster Memorial cheesesteak without the cheese. There was Treat, a recovering sex maniac who always ordered the Cape Canaveral-style griddle cakes with a side salad containing extra cucumbers, but no carrots or chopped egg or romaine lettuce or baby corn five days a week. 52 weeks a year, religious and federally observed holidays not exempt. And then, there was Bill. Bill's substitute addiction, unlike those of his Neil Armstrong's pancake and maple syrup craving co-addicts, was not, at its root, culinary. Rather, it involved seating arrangements. Every workday, at 12 noon, during Bill's lunch break, he would call our hostess, Patsy, and request that his favorite booth be reserved for six o'clock sharp. We don't take reservations at Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House, never have, but there was certainly no use in telling this to Bill. Just as Bill's brothers and sisters in AA and NA and SA attempted to maintain 12-step homeostasis and quell their respective self-destructive urges via the familiar tang of Neil Armstrong's fresh-squeezed orange juice, the familiar fluffiness of her buttermilk pancakes, the familiar patriotic-slash-caffeinated buzz of the Eagle Has Landed iced tea, Bill sought refuge from his own dipsomaniacal demons in the familiar comforts of his favorite vinyl-covered corner booth. The same booth, father, in which you now enjoy your ice-cold diet Pepsi, with a garnish of lemon. Bill would make his lunch break phone call, work the rest of his shift, punch out, go home, get changed, and show up at Neil's at six o'clock sharp, and if the booth, his booth, was occupied, oh boy, trouble. To his credit, he wouldn't make a big scene or anything, he wouldn't harangue Patsy at her hostess's podium, wouldn't rant and rave, wouldn't utter that dreaded contempt-coded phrase, I'd like to speak to your manager. He would wander the restaurant interior, zombie-like, and make small children cry as he lingered dead-eyed and sallow-faced by the restaurant-provided high chairs. He would inadvertently collide with Neil Armstrong's servers and send bottomless coffee spilling all over their impossible-to-clean chalk-white pressurized suits. He would stagger violently into paying customers for mica tables while attempting to study the framed photos of Neil Armstrong with Nixon, Warhol, Cassavetes, and Sartre, and cause the Neil Armstrong classic, or the One Small Step for Man meal deal, or the Mission Control special with warm fruit compote and whipped topping, to careen onto some recovering winos, or fishing enthusiasts, or hardcore sex animals, or methadone clinic outpatients lap.
So Patsy took Bill's reservations. She wrote herself a note on a sticky yellow post-it and place-saved Bill's booth with life-size cardboard cutouts of the crew of Apollo 11 every weekday afternoon at 4.30 p.m., just to be safe. For one and a half hours, the mute, immobile, corrugated, two-dimensional crew of Apollo 11 held court in Bill's booth, delighting small children, unwittingly posing for family photo ops, staring off into the distance in disparate directions heroically, patriotically, and unblinkingly. And then at six o'clock sharp, Bill strolled into Neil Armstrong's with a smile, hiya Patsy, what's new? And Patsy gave the servers the signal to remove the cardboard Neil, Buzz, and Michael Collins from Bill's booth and then showed Bill to his seat. Right this way, Mr. Bill. And Bill politely ordered his food, ate without incident, and left his server a generous 25-30% to tip. No wandering. No collisions. No former heroin addicts or booze hounds or sex fiends with maple syrup all over their laps. No harm. No foul. No crying children. Everybody won. Then the factory shut down. I remember the last day of its operation distinctly. My father coming home, exhaling deeply, collapsing onto the couch and not getting up. My mother returning from her shift at Shave and Save, dog tired, oblivious, slapping at my father's back. God damn it, Walt, you're lying on the remote. I worked the late shift at Neil Armstrong's that day, and I saw men weeping into piles of golden buttermilk pancakes. I saw women, some visibly pregnant, tear at their clothes, gnash their teeth, rub hash browns all over their skin. I saw long lines of laid-off novelty hat employees congregating outside the Surgeon General's, across the street, next door to teach a man to fish, accepting free samples of prescription medication from sexy pharmaceutical reps in leather corsets and fishnet stockings who dispensed their complimentary pain-dilling pills beneath a flickering marquee announcing the GlaxoSmithKline all-nude review in all-business sans-serif font. And I saw Bill, asleep, in his favorite booth, where he remained, peaceful and unconscious, well into the wee hours of the morning. After the factory closed down, the mood in Neil Armstrong's was funereal. Some female customers wore mourning veils, others solemnly gripped the stems of white lilies. Almost everyone, male and female, wore black. Bill, no longer occupied with eight hours a day of assembly line work, dutifully outfitting remote control sombreros, maximum cruising altitude of 75 feet, with rotary propellers, spent most of his waking hours, plus many of his non-waking ones, at Neil Armstrong's, in his favorite booth, drowning his sorrows in maple syrup and heavy country-style gravy. God grant me the serenity, he said, tearfully, to the cardboard crew of Apollo 11 sharing his seat in solidarity. The jukebox played dust in the wind, waiting round to die, assorted Hungarian dirges. Easy does it, said Bill. First things first, there's no gain without pain, one day at a time. Soon, the regulars started relapsing. Our dishwashers and busboys would take out the trash and find our AWOL-valued customers, in flagrant delicto, out back, 
drunk or high or fornicating in our commercial dumpster. It is my opinion, Father, that one does not truly understand the crippling power of addiction until he sees a once upstanding and universally admired member of the community, a Boy Scout master, for example, or a volunteer fire marshal, or the conductor of the local youth orchestra, passed out in an alcoholic stupor on a bed of rancid syrup and maggot-infested pancake batter until he sees a former three-time all-conference offensive lineman, once known countywide as the immovable beast, sprawled in an opiate haze amid expired bacon, ancient dill pickles, congealed coleslaw, until he sees a TV weatherman and a Russian mail-order bride come full-service masseuse, making uncomfortable, desperate, syrup-coated love on a dense mound of discarded sausage, their expressions pleasureless and grim. At this time, we also discovered, in our dumpsters, and in our streets, and on our median strips, and in our waterways, untold thousands of novelty hats, disgruntled former employees breaking into the factory late at night and escaping with novelty hats by the sackful, raging recession victims and shareholders burning oscillating Humburgs, name that tune mortarboards, and AM-FM trilbies in a large bonfire in front of the local Wells Fargo bank, turbulent Santa Ana-style winds carrying the surviving merchandise all across our depressed, despondent, dead elm-riddled town. For the most part, everyone suffered. Shopkeepers lost their customers. Real estate agents were unable to sell new homes. Professional clowns performed at children's birthday parties and were paid only in surplus cake icing. But the news channels, of course, had a never-ending field day. Plucky, gel-haired reporters on location in boarded-up, hat-littered downtown, intoning solemnly about our town's desolation and depravity and swirling funnel clouds of glow-in-the-dark fedoras. News anchors in crisp suits and tight-fitting sweaters and cleavage-revealing blouses nodding their heads empathically, and now to stew for suicides and the weather. Civic leaders appealed to the local government for assistance, but it did little good. Marches and rallies were staged with spotty attendance. Buttons and bumper stickers were passed out, then found minutes later tossed onto the curb. The mayor's office did institute one protester-appeasing program, a city beautification project wherein church and youth and other volunteer groups were to collect the surplus street-littering hats and deposit them in various Goodwill and St. Vincent de Paul drop-off boxes located throughout our town. But after it was discovered that a colony of drug-addicted indigents were using said drop-off boxes for intravenous injections and shelter, and a growing subset of the truck stop hookers were using the boxes to clandestinely and gratuitously pursue their commercial interests, the project was scrapped, the drop-off boxes were abandoned, and our streets and sidewalks and lawns remained covered in polyester, suede, leather, and felt. And yet, through all of this, the layoffs, the outrage, the helplessness, the littering, the frustration, the growing number of ex-regulars boozing and screwing and shooting up in St. Vincent de Paul drop-off boxes and in our restaurant's solid waste, Bill kept coming into Neil Armstrong's. 
Despite the economic hardship and the count-on-one-hand crowds at AA meetings and the neon temptations of the Surgeon General's flickering Miller Lite and Heineken and Budweiser King of Beer's window display signs, Bill kept sitting in his beloved seat, kept devouring pancakes and pork sausage links, kept spilling his sorrows to cardboard Neil and Buzz, kept saying no to the seductions of the bottle kept spilling his sorrows to cardboard Neil and Buzz, kept saying no to the seductions of the bottle. My father, meanwhile, remained on our living room couch, sleeping all day, moaning low in the night, befouling his underclothes on the upholstery, unless my mother stood watch diligently with the bedpan. At first my mother was heartbreakingly tender and understanding and acquiescent, She gently tousled my father's unwashed hair, emptied the bedpan's contents without complaint, spoke to my father only in the most hushed, loving, and non-combative of tones. Whenever you feel ready to discuss this, Walt, honey, dear, I'll be right here, on the barca lounger. You need only to say the word. But even the most devoted and giving and selfless of spouses has her limit. Even the kindest and truest of hearts can only take so much. My mother's heart, for instance, could not quite take my father's lifeless, unseemly, ripe-smelling husk remaining on our living room couch during her own parents announced at the last-minute Easter visit from Tacoma, Washington. Could not quite take the inevitable concerned parental lines of questioning once she explained that my father would not be able to attend Easter Mass, would not be able to help decorate brightly dyed hard-boiled eggs, would not be able to shake her parents' hands or respond to external stimuli or bathe, clothe, shave, feed, or hygienically relieve himself due to his being gripped by catatonia ever since losing his job ensuring the quality control of novelty hats. And so, after a particularly exhausting and emotionally taxing and syrup-splattering shift at Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House, I had to help my five-foot-nothing, 100-pound former ballerina mother carry my ex-middle linebacker father up the precarious uncarpeted stairs to the master bedroom. The bedroom where he has remained ever since, minus brief interludes in the nearby bathroom for periodic upkeep and maintenance. To cover from my father's conspicuous absence during my maternal grandparents' Good Friday through Easter Monday visit, my mother said that my father was away on vacation, out east, touring the most well-tended and photogenic gravesites of the Union's and the Confederacy's Civil War dead. She explained that Easter season was a particularly appealing time of year for historical graveyard tourism due to pleasant weather and festive holiday hotel discounts and the profusion of nearby large-scale reenactments of famous battles such as Shiloh and Chickamauga and the Wilderness, and explained away my father's faintly audible low moaning by chalking it up to either the wind, residential traffic, or our home's antiquated heating and ventilation system. There is no doubt that, enduring my grandparents' ill-timed Easter visit with a secretly deranged and motionless and incontinent husband hidden away in her bedroom was very hard on my mother. No doubt that for the entirety of her elderly parents' four-day, three-night stay, my mother's mind and body were on terror-alert level red, 
severe threat of nervous breakdown or anxiety-slash-panic attack. But, to her immense credit, she remained strong. She valiantly weathered our pastor's wirelessly amplified Easter sermon on God's love shining radiantly upon us, even as our loved ones lose their livelihoods and succumb to vice and propel themselves in rented hundis into the tar pits. She bravely kept it together during the prayer of thanks at a post-mass brunch, the pastel revelry of at-home Easter egg consumption, the grandfather-suggested familial viewing of Ben-Hur on DVD, with subtitles and simplified Chinese that my mother didn't even bother trying to turn off. But, again, there is only so much a tender and true heart can take. When Easter Monday came, and my mother dropped her kiss-blowing parents off at Sacramento International, and she returned home to me finishing off the Easter vodka straight from the bottle on the now-available living room couch, and to her catatonic husband still in the master bedroom, in bed, staring at the ceiling, not blinking, moaning low, she lost it. My mother screaming, kicking, flailing, cursing taking the Lord's name repeatedly and effusively in vain. The vodka hadn't yet kicked in, so I was thankfully able to dodge the chocolate rabbit and baby chick heads flying at me as my mother judo-chopped the leftover Easter candy. I was able to ferry the most irreplaceable of our family heirlooms and the most expensive of our audiovisual equipment to the safety of the downstairs bathroom, where I locked myself in until the sounds of living room smashing and clattering and screaming ceased. Of course, when they did finally cease, I was quite drunk. My first clue that I was quite drunk was when I tried to exit the bathroom unsuccessfully for ten minutes and then realized I had been accidentally flushing the toilet instead of turning the door handle. My second clue that I was quite drunk was when I finally did turn the door handle and open the door and exit the bathroom and I abruptly fell flat on my face. One of the first things I noticed after impact from my worm's eye view prostrate on the hardwood floor was that there was Easter chocolate everywhere. On the windows, on the bookshelves, on the family portraits, on the blinds. In some places, the shards of shattered chocolate were anatomically discernible. Ears on the couch, beaks on the barca lounger, cottontails on the coffee table, wings on the fake Persian rug. But in other places, the confectionery remains were unrecognizable. Discolorations on the floorboards, abstract expressionism on the walls, Rorschach blots on the radiator, the curtains, the ceiling, ugly, brown, fecal-looking smears on the Hardy Boy series, the collected works of Danielle Steele, all 32 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's okay, said my mother, calm, collected, resting on the chocolate-covered couch. We can get through this. People have gotten through worse. Compare this to Dresden, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Stalingrad. Compare this to Bataan, Chernobyl, Bhopal, Darfur. See, really, this is nothing. This is small potatoes, bush league, kid stuff. Compare this to Sarajevo. Compare this to Gaza, Fallujah, Rwanda, the Trail of Tears. What history tells us is that people can survive anything, that people are resilient. 
that people always find a way. Compare this to Kashmir. Compare this to Dachau, to Riesenstadt, Auschwitz, Buchenwald. The key is to remember that things could be far, far worse. The key is to maintain a proper perspective. The alcohol now cursing through my bloodstream had made up 50% of the Easter vodka I had earlier consumed on the living room couch before my mother started performing jujitsu on chocolate baby chicks and semi-sweet Easter bunnies. This meant that the vodka was 100 proof, at least as labeled in the United States. The clinical term for the effect the alcohol had on my eyesight was diplopia, double vision, which caused my mother to divide into two identical mothers, side by side, phasing in and out of convergence, both mothers with the same out-of-fashion clothes, the same out-of-fashion hairstyle, the same same out-of-fashion hairstyle, the same out-of-fashion facial expression of tenderness, resilience, and love. I tried to ocularly consolidate my two mothers into one, attempted unification, as with post-Berlin Wall East and West Germany, but the vodka in my veins wouldn't let me. I also attempted verticality, tried to raise myself several inches off the hardwood floor, but the vodka wouldn't let me do that, either. What it comes down to is a choice, said my mothers, both of them, one voice from two identical mouths. In column A, we have things like despair, anxiety, frustration, we have self-pity, we have surrender, we have helplessness, anger, depression, fear, and then we have column B, strength, persistence, courage and hope, resolve, fortitude, tenacity, love. This isn't mix and match, it's not build your own burger, it's not an all-you-can-eat buffet, it's either all of one or all of the other. Column A or column B, which do we choose, what do we decide, how do we live? Personally, I think the choice is really quite clear. The vodka was Polish. In our household, it was used only for special occasions, such as holidays, birthdays, and surprise outcomes of major sporting events. I'm not actually a big vodka drinker, and more of a whiskey man, maybe the occasional Roman Coke, but as the years go by and my need for therapeutic intoxication grows, my palate becomes less and less discerning. For instance, these days I mostly pound Miller Lite at the Sergeant General's. Inelegant, yes, I know, father. Vulgar, unsophisticated, plebeian. But you want to know something? It still does. The trick. So here's what we're going to do, said my mother. From now on, every day, we're going to let your father know that we love him, no matter what. Even if he's like this for weeks. Even if he's like this for months, years, decades, forever. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. The important thing is that he is your father, and my husband, and he is here, and he is loved. I admit that at first, it will not be easy. It's not going to be happy days. It's not going to be leave it to beaver. But we've got to do our best. We've got to try. Column B. We've got to fight. Maybe we'll have to do without some luxuries until your father gets back on his feet. Cable, high-speed internet, 
Netflix, dining out, daily, showers, but don't let it get you down. Don't make your father think we are disappointed in him, that he is blamed, that he is at fault. Maybe we'll have to sell some of the furniture. This couch might fetch more than you think. The coffee table, the barca lounger, the cabinets, the bureaus, our beds. eBay is a wonderful resource for people in our situation. There's no reason he even has to know until he's fully recovered. It's not like we'll be dragging him downstairs anytime soon. Plus, remember, the TV, the 5.1 surround system, the furniture, they're all just things, objects, inorganic, easily replaceable. The dining table might get us 60 or 70. The liquor cabinet might get us 45. So maybe we'll have to sell the house. Maybe we won't be able to find any buyers and the bank will foreclose and we'll have to move in with my parents in Tacoma. So be it. It's not like Tacoma's Trenchtown. It's not like Tacoma's Kabul, Mogadishu, Port-au-Prince, Brazzaville, Tehran. Mount Rainier, for instance, is lovely. Vancouver is an easy day trip, and Seattle is only a 30 to 40 minute drive. Of course, Tacoma itself is not without its own special charms. As far as accommodations, your father and I can sleep in my childhood room, which I'm pretty sure is now used for storing your grandmother's antique pushbroom collection, and more likely than not, your grandpa can clear out some space for you in the laundry room or his study. It won't be so hard to get used to the tighter living arrangements. It won't be so hard to get used to NPR, the home shopping network, C-SPAN, the Golf Channel. Compare Tacoma to Chiapas. Compare Tacoma to Siberia. It won't be so hard to get used to bland, home-cooked meals rich in fiber. It won't be so hard to get used to the constant rains. See, there's no other choice, really. We're gonna have to buck up. We're gonna have to steal ourselves. We're gonna have to grin and bear it. The key is to tell your father that we love him every day, as often and as assertively as we can. It might not seem like he can hear us, but he can hear us. I know it. I'm sure of it. Let him know it's okay, what he's doing, that his catatonia is understandable, that it's perfectly reasonable, that it's par for the course. But also let him know, gently, that we want him back. We want him laughing again, smiling, talking, singing along to the Eagles and Donna Summer and Huey Lewis in the News on the car radio. So maybe we'll have to sell the radio. Maybe we'll have to sell the car. Maybe he won't be able to find another factory job and we'll have to work minimum wage at Kafka Burger or help me out over at the Shave and Save or sell bottled water and bootleg DVDs and perishable goods near busy intersections, possibly while wearing a sandwich board urging motorists to apply for adjustable interest rate loans. So what? Let him know it's okay. Let him know it doesn't matter. All that matters is that he comes back. Let him know we just want him back. Three months later, Bill maxed out his credit card. I was the one who swiped it. The one who read the digitized verdict, declined. The one who bore Bill the bad news. Bill had not even been trying to find a new job, had instead been spending all day, every day, at Neil Armstrong's, in his favorite booth, 
enjoying hearty portions of chicken fried steak and ooey gooey biscuits as his relapsed AA mates wandered our parking lot, mumbling, twitching, begging, broke, and now it was finally time for Bill to face the music. The jukebox played Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer by Stevie Wonder. After that was The Tears of a Clown. I tried to return Bill's credit card to him, but he just kept shaking his head and saying he didn't understand, so I explained his financial predicament as best I could, using table salt and NutraSweet packets as visual aids, table salt representing his credit card debt, NutraSweet packets representing his paychecks from applying propellers to novelty hats. Outside, the parking lot indigents fought desperately over the half-pecked-apart carcass of a squirrel, and inside I shook salt onto Bill's Formica table until there was a Mount Rainier-like NACL mound, ever-growing, excess salt spilling onto the seats, the floor, the cardboard cutouts of Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin. Patsy gamely kept supplying me with more shakers. The mound grew and grew and grew. The salt overflow reached Bill's side of the table, a snow of sodium flavor enhancement all over Bill's polyester pants, and Bill became incredibly distraught. What about the NutraSuite, he said, quaveringly, wiping his crystalline credit card debt off of his slacks. I took the artificial sweetener packets and ripped them in half. Bill buried his head in his hands and wept. After further inquiries, it soon became clear that Bill was what Neil Armstrong's employee handbook refers to as a non-paying guest, someone with no cash in his wallet, no money in his bank account, no more available lines of credit, a non-customer, a trespasser, a leech. As per Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House company policy, I informed Bill that, due to his inability to pay for his meal, he would need to vacate our restaurant's premises immediately. My exact wording, right out of the employee handbook, was, On behalf of all of us at Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House, I'm going to have to ask you to enjoy the rest of your day outside the boundaries of our commercially zoned property. But Bill wouldn't budge. He bunkered down in his booth. He ignored my repeated verbal instructions, wrapped his legs around the Formica table's pedestal base, and gripped a bottle of Heinz ketchup as if it were a talisman, a ward against 57 varieties of evil. He brandished a salad fork. He begged me to let him stay. Please, he said, I won't order any more food. I won't ask you for a thing, won't get in the way, won't cost you a dime. I'll be practically invisible. I'll be quiet as a mouse. Please, just let me stay in the booth. The employee handbook has a chapter entitled, The Customer is Not Always Right. It outlines the proper protocol for when a customer becomes verbally abusive, enters the restaurant belligerently drunk, utilizes ketchup and syrup bottles as deadly missiles, shoots indiscriminately at fellow patrons and Neil Armstrong's staff with an illegally modified assault rifle, etc. There are helpful illustrated figures and also charts and graphs. 
the protocol for when a non-paying guest refuses to voluntarily exit the restaurant is to assertively but non-combatively repeat verbal instructions for said guest to leave and to immediately notify the manager of the situation in the event that more serious and law enforcement involving remedial steps need to be undertaken. As was expected of me, I repeated the appropriate verbal instructions. I spoke assertively and non-combatively. I immediately notified the manager of the situation. My response was a shining beacon of adherence to company protocol. I can wash the windows for you, said Bill, undeterred, relinquishing the talismanic ketchup bottle and grasping my pressurized glove. I can sweep the floors, empty the trash, refill the salt shakers, apply spackle, caulk, grout. I can file I-9 forms and vendors' invoices. I can play soothing classical guitar sonatas and administer post-shift Swedish massages. I can change light bulbs, inspect for faulty wiring, perform routine maintenance on electrical equipment. I can wax. I can polish. I can buff. I can scrub the toilets in the men's restroom to a blinding porcelain shine. I felt sorry for Bill. Who wouldn't? A good man, dealt a lousy hand. But protocol is protocol. No pay, no stay. The employee handbook could not be more clear. And yes, Father, I know that the Bible tells us to treat the less fortunate with compassion. Blessed are the poor, the meek shall inherit the earth, the hungry will be filled, etc., etc. But the employee handbook tells us that non-paying guests may not perform unpaid labor in exchange for meals or shelter. It tells us to thank all employment applicants for their interest, then direct them to the nearest restaurant exit with both firmness and tact. The employee handbook tells us nothing about the merciful, the peacemakers, the pure of heart, those persecuted for seeking righteousness. It tells us to make sure our company spacesuits are always sufficiently pressurized. It tells us the customer, see, the customer is not always right, page 147 to 193 for exceptions, is always right. I can forage for food in the parking lot, continued Bill, relentlessly. I can drink rainwater. I can hunt squirrels, chipmunks, deer, feral cats, dogs. I can eliminate any possibility of a rodent infestation. I can make clothing from the skins of my kills. Just let me stay. Please, let me stay in the booth. Certainly, Father, in a perfect world, I would have said, sure. I would have said, absolutely, not a problem. Okie doke. Why not? But look outside, Father. Do you see a perfect world? Does a perfect world contain, for instance, Russian mail-order brides covered head-to-toe in postage stamps? Does a perfect world contain truck-stop hookers stoking the flames of barrel fires with surplus novelty hats? Does a perfect world contain parking lots littered with empty liquor bottles and used needles and condoms and hundreds of unwanted financial advice dispensing sombreros and toothless indigents fighting vociferously over raw squirrel they are physically unable to even chew? I would posit the answer is nope. So instead, I informed Bill that, per company policy, the booth was for customers only. In retrospect, this is what really set Bill off. But I am a customer, he cried, tightening his grip on my glove. 
for over three months now. Every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I am a customer. For breakfast, I order the Neil Armstrong Classic. For lunch, I order the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster Memorial Cheesesteak. For dinner, I order the Mission Control Special. I order multiple beverages. I order soups, salads, extra sides. I order appetizers. I elect to try dessert. How am I not a customer? As per company protocol, I remained assertive. I remained assertive, but non-combative. I politely reminded Bill of his outstanding total, which did not include the gratuity, and asked him how he would like to pay, cash or credit. Bill started twitching and frothing at the mouth. His face grew strawberry red. His ranting did not cease. And before that, for three years, every weekday, six o'clock sharp, I am here. Always a full entree, always a soft drink, always a 25 to 30 percent tip. Three years in the same booth, what more do I have to do? Tell me, enlighten me, do I have to drink an entire bottle of maple syrup? Do I have to shower daily in pancake batter? Do I have to dress like Jane Fonda and Barbarella and orally service the manager in his office during slow hours? What do I have to do? What more do you want? Tell me. I told Bill we accepted Visa. I told him we accepted MasterCard, EuroCard, American Express. Please, he said, I'm not too proud to beg you. I'm not too proud to plead for mercy. I'm not too proud to get down on my hands and knees and grovel before you, clutch your pressurized uniform, bow my head in supplication, weep and wail, cover myself with ashes, wear a sackcloth, gnash my teeth. I told him we accepted Discover. I reminded him Novus was the same thing as Discover. Please, he repeated, I am a customer. His hand, still clutching my glove, was shaking now. Tears were streaming down his cheeks. I am a customer. I am a customer. I am a customer. I am a customer. Diners club, I told him. Traveler's checks. Debit bank cards. Cash. The jukebox played for what it's worth. The indigents in the parking lot captured a live cocker spaniel. Bill's hand shook like a half-broken washing machine. This booth is all I have. Eventually, with assistance from the local authorities, we were able to extract Bill from our restaurant and ensure that any attempts at re-entry would result in the filing of criminal charges, carrying the penalty of imprisonment and or heavy fines. Not my proudest moment, certainly, but 100% by the book in terms of Neil Armstrong's company policy. At the same time, of course, I could appreciate and understand why Bill was so reluctant to leave the familiar comforts of his beloved corner booth, why he bit the ear of our manager, why he clawed at the faces of police, why he kicked and thrashed and spit and chewed to avoid losing the last source of constancy and stability he had left. I never threatened police with a salad fork, never bit anyone's ear, but I did, for instance, walk to the tar pits every day, after work, for a year, and throw away my loose change, wishing for Maxine to speak to me again. 
I did keep Maxine's pictures taped to my bedroom walls for months after she had left me until finally replacing her photos and sketches and etchings with posters of attractive lingerie-clad women with whom I had no emotional connection, women whom I never spoken to, whom I never met. I did, and do, sometimes walk over to Maxine's parents' house late at night and Jimmy opened the door of the shark so I can sit in the passenger's seat, close my eyes, and relive the old days. Professor Albert's spearmint, fragrant in the leather interior, soft rock favorites of the 70s, 80s, and 90s on the AM-FM radio, Maxine's hands all over me, my chest, my shoulders, my thighs, my hair, my face, my scars, the places no one else has ever touched. But the shark no longer actually smells like spearmint. I don't have the key, so the radio is dead. Maxine's hands are out east, running through somebody else's hair, caressing somebody else's face, tracing somebody else's spine, exploring somebody else's scars. And Bill is outside, as we speak, staring at you, enjoying your refreshing Pepsi-Cola product in his favorite booth. I'll get your order to the kitchen. Lickety. Split. There's another risk from that And it is in my heart that I fall There's another risk from that Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. My name is Mitch, and I will be your server this evening. For starters, can I get you anything to drink? Diet Coke. No, I'm sorry, but Neil Armstrong's only sells fine Pepsi Cola products. Might I suggest a Diet Pepsi, or regular Pepsi, or Diet Pepsi's closely related ginseng infused cousin, Diet Pepsi Max? No, you want a Diet Coke. Of course, I understand completely. You crave Diet Coke's sweet tang, 
its cola bite. Its absence from our menu unsettles you, confuses you, frightens you. Long ago convinced of Coca-Cola's superiority by ad saturation, by product placement, by anthropomorphic cola-swilling bears, you find yourself in enemy territory, on unfamiliar ground, the logo's garish, the slogan's all wrong, the caramel coloring just a shade off. You are a stranger in a strange land. You grasp blindly for the familiar. You curse the heavens, excoriate the saints, wonder aloud what kind of god would ever allow us to carry fine Pepsi-Cola products instead of your beloved, Hollywood brand of choice. But here's the thing. When Neil Armstrong started franchising its restaurants in the late 70s, the brainchild of the same Dallas entrepreneur who had won the licensing rights for the Neil Armstrong 4-in-1 machine lathe and the Neil Armstrong Practomatic cordless drill, Neil and the board of directors knew they were sitting on a gold mine. They struck a sweetheart deal with NASA for pressurized spacesuits. They explored synergistic tie-ins with ABC's popular sitcom Mork and Mindy. They partnered with Dallas-Fort Worth school districts to spread Neil Armstrong's message of the importance of science education and delicious buttermilk pancakes to children. When it came time to ink a multi-million dollar beverage supply agreement, Neil Armstrong's invited representatives from both Coca-Cola and Pepsi to visit the Pancake House's handsome corporate office in Plano and make their sales pitches, and both soft drink giants sent their best men, young, tireless, driven, unconditionally dedicated to their companies. The men perfected Texas drawls on the flight to the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. They arrived in Plano wearing expensive designer cowboy boots and company logo emblazoned Stetson hats. The men gave their spiels, cited their figures, displayed their pie charts, dot plots, bar graphs, and Neil and the directors listened expressionlessly, hands folded, cufflinks gleaming, as their water glasses were refilled by attractive secretaries wearing skirts made of space-age materials. When the pitches were finished, the Coke and Pepsi men's closing arguments alluding to Lyndon Baines Johnson, the Yellow Rose of Texas, the Battle of the Alamo, the chairman of the board, a giant of a man, stood up from his seat next to spacesuit-wearing Neil Armstrong and addressed the soft drink men in his thick, trademark Texas twang. How bad you want it, he said. How bad you sons of bitches want it. The Coke and Pepsi men, both summa cum laude from Yale, indicated that they wanted the supply deal very badly. They presented flowcharts illustrating their passion, box and whisker plots corroborating their desire. But the chairman of the board was not appeased. He explained, in his colorful East Texan accent, that if they truly wanted the supply deal, if their desire was as strong as their flowcharts and bar graphs claimed, they would prove it to him. He boys married, he said, and the Coke and Pepsi men said yes, they were. Happily married, said the chairman, eyebrow raised, and the beverage reps again answered in the affirmative. The chairman then made his offer. Whoever was willing to call his wife, that moment, on the boardroom phone, and tell her he never loved her, would get the deal. The coke man was incredulous, horrified, stunned. Surely you must be joking, he said, but no one laughed. The directors remained expressionless. The chairman narrowed his eyes. Neil Armstrong spit a wad of chewing tobacco onto the carpet. The coke man took a step back, 
surveyed the bolo tie-wearing directors and the spacesuited Neil Armstrong with bewilderment and disgust and shook his head. You're crazy, he said. You're all crazy. But the Pepsi man took a step forward. Give me the phone, he said. And the chairman obliged. The Pepsi man reached his young wife, Daisy, at their home in Charlotte, North Carolina. The chairman pressed the speakerphone button, and the board of directors heard Daisy squeal with delight. Why, honey pie, she said. What a pleasant surprise. The Pepsi man's wife's voice was sweet and musical, even when distorted by the speakerphone. The board of directors heard her tell her husband how lonesome she was for him, how she pined for him, how she counted down the hours until his return. How'd you like Plano, she said. Are they feeding you good? Is your hotel real nice? What's Neil Armstrong really like? The Pepsi man, Daisy's husband, ignored her. Sweetheart, he said. Remember that night beneath the bleachers of your old high school, when the moon was full and the cottonwoods were shedding their seeds in the wind and the air was electric with anticipation as I took you by the hand and gazed deeply into your eyes and told you for the first time that I loved you? Why, of course, sugar cakes, said his wife, dripping sweetness over the phone line. How could I forget? Well, I was lying, said the Pepsi man, matter-of-factly. I didn't love you and I never have. The Pepsi man told his wife that he had married her for her family's money. He said that their passionate, months-long courtship had been nothing but a calculated, cold-blooded charade. He said that he cherished the moments when he was not near her, the long hours at work, the business trips, the charity events for the American Heart Association and the March of Dimes, jumping at any excuse to rid himself of her, to extricate himself from their sham of a union. He said that he cheated on her, he said that he betrayed her darkest secrets to all his friends. He said that when he made love to her, when he kissed her, when he delicately stroked her hair and caressed her naked body with his fingers, his lips, his tongue, he imagined she was someone else, a lingerie model, a Hollywood actress, one of the chambermaids he routinely screwed in his hotel room on business trips, and it was only through artifice, through fantasy, that he was able to make physical intimacy with her bearable. On the speakerphone, the board of directors heard his young wife scream. They heard her scream, no, again and again and again. The Pepsi man continued, alphabetically listed his infidelities, detailed the depths of his deception, but all anyone could hear were his wife's screams, saturating the phone line, exploding from the speaker. The directors kept their hands folded. Neil Armstrong chewed his jaw. The secretaries refilled glasses of water. The Pepsi man hung up the phone. The line went dead, and the chairman extended his hand. Congratulations, he said, and in this way, the matter was settled. So, Diet Pepsi then. Wonderful. I knew you'd come around. I'll have your drink coming right up. Hello, Father. Welcome back to Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. Can I start you off with something to drink? A Diet Pepsi. Of course. Ever popular tonight. Is there anything else I can get you? You wish to know about the man who is weeping alone in the adjacent booth? Of course. He is a regular here, known to us all. As you will notice, there are two plates of the Neil Armstrong signature sampler on his table, one in front of him, and one in front of an empty seat. He and his wife used to eat here every Sunday evening, 
always ordering the sampler, but she passed away last month from cervical cancer, and now he orders for himself and her ghost. The most curious thing, though, Father, is that he's happy as a clam when he comes in. He strolls to the booth, hums along to the jukebox, sits down, then orders for himself and his wife in a pleasant, sing-song voice. My wife's running late, he explains. I expect she'll arrive any minute. As he waits for his food, he remains in high spirits. He jokes with the hostess. He makes faces at small children. He sings along with the songs he knows on the jukebox, Golden Oldies, Motown, anything by Sinatra. But then the food arrives, two identical platters of deep-fried shrimp, golden brown chicken, and juicy tender steak set down on his table, and he loses it. It finally hits him. He knocks over the salt shaker. He spills his beverage in his lap. He sobs into his entree, his soup, his side of baked potato, onion rings, fries, or hash browns. The first time I felt bad for him and told him the meals were on me, had the total deducted from my paycheck, but then it happened the following week, and the week after that, and after a while his personal tragedy lost its emotional impact, it lost its novelty, it became just as sad as anything else, fading into the background, like the novelty hat-wearing indigents in the parking lot, like the Russian mail-order brides being returned to the post office across the street, like the framed photos of Neil Armstrong cradling the bodies of dead Sudanese children, tears streaming from Neil's eyes. Now I let the man pay for both meals. He tips well. I help him stagger to the restroom, and then to his car, when it is time for him to go home. Father, assuming that you never partook in the pleasures of the flesh prior to your ordination in the church, I would posit that it's difficult for you to fully grasp what it's like to lose someone who you've been intimate with, someone whose head has left its imprint on your pillow, whose body has communed with your own, whose contours and topography are known to you the way mountain ranges and river basins are known to cartographers. Maxine is not dead, we were never married, but I feel like I understand to some degree, the plight of the man in the adjacent booth. I understand his loneliness. I understand his confusion, his sadness, his denial. I understand why he can enter smiling and exit weeping, deep-fried shrimp, golden chicken, and USDA-choice beef catalysts for incapacitating, heart-rending misery. I understand the difficulty of facing that full plate served to an empty seat. When Maxine left for college, out east, on scholarship, we were still, quote-unquote, together. The quintessential 21st century long-distance relationship, multi-stamp packages, emoticon-laden instant messages, meticulously constructed mix CDs, exorbitant phone bills that greedily devoured my tips. The plan, as I saw it, was that by the time Maxine graduated with her bachelor's in English literature, I would already be well-established as a nose-to-the-grindstone, eyes-to-the-stars assistant manager in Neil Armstrong's, well on my way up the company corporate ladder, so that as soon as Maxine found a job in some major metropolitan area, doing whatever it is people with degrees in English literature do, I could get transferred to the nearest giant leap for mankind pancake house franchise, and Maxine and I could find a cheap but attractive one-bedroom apartment in a respectable part of town, and local birds would sing arresting melodies at the first light of sunrise, and life would be blissful and sweet. 
Certainly, in retrospect, the plan had its holes. Certainly, it contained a very real potential for disappointment and disaster. But at the time, I wasn't overly concerned with calculating my plan's statistical probability of failure. At the time, I wasn't in the habit of performing cost-reward analysis on my dreams. Back then, in the era of good feelings, in the silver years of novelty hats, I was unabashedly optimistic. Before the St. Vincent de Paul boxes became brothels and the Hyundai rentals became fossils, I was starry-eyed, fresh-faced, brimming with innocence and hope. Back then, as I accompanied Maxine to the airport, as I held her hand tenderly to the security line, as I tearfully watched her recede from me on an ascending elevator, carrying her steadily, cruelly, and diagonally away, I was convinced, unwaveringly, completely, that love, like the love promised by the songs on Maxine's impeccably sequenced mix CDs, would keep us together, that love would conquer all, that love would find a way shows you what Yes, Lionel Richie, and Captain Antoniel know about love. In the beginning, to their credit, Captain Antoniel et al. weren't too far off in terms of their advocacy of love's adhesive properties. Long-distance love wasn't perfect, but it seemed to beat the alternative. It seemed to beat breaking up. Maxine and I would talk on the phone daily, in the conversational windows between my shifts and her classes, and as we discussed the eccentrics in her dormitory, the eccentrics in my pancake house, the minutiae and punctilios and trivial pursuits of our lives now spent 3,000 miles apart, I would close my eyes, listen to Maxine's modulated, melodious voice, and imagine her lying beside me, my bedroom, fragrant with Professor Albert Spearmint, my mattress conforming to familiar contours, my body heated by Maxine's radiated warmth. We talked, often for hours, Maxine describing the lifestyles of the rich and undergraduate, me describing the lifestyles of the wearers and manufacturers of novelty hats, and for a while, at least, the sound of Maxine's voice was enough to compensate for the conspicuousness of her corporeal absence. The parking lot, sharkless, when I got off of work. The tar pits, eerily quiet, where I now made my one-cent wishes alone. This was the tail end of the era of good feelings, when, despite my loneliness, my anxiety, my transcontinental separation from the English lit major I loved, I was still able to conceive of Maxine and I as being essentially together, as opposed to apart. Together thus meant in only the most spiritual and romantic and cosmic sense, rather than the more physical togetherness Maxine and I were accustomed to back in the silver years of novelty hats. Fingers clasped together in school hallways, supermarket aisles, back rows of movie theaters, recreationally zoned property, lips pressed together in bedrooms, dark rooms, the geographic center of downtown, for all to see legs wrapped together beneath blankets, beneath the stars, on mattresses, futons, love seats, invasive California grass, backseat leather or vinyl, bodies joined together in rapture, in ecstasy, in love. All these meanings, once in wide lexicographical use, now sadly archaic, obscure, dated, obsolete. For a while, we tried phone sex. Please forgive me, Father, by the way, if I get too graphic for you. Feel free to stop me at any time. 
It is certainly not my intention to offend, embarrass, or titillate you. I keep forgetting you are a man of the cloth. So, as I was saying, we tried phone sex. Oh, and one more thing before I continue. Quick question for you. Pop quiz. A theological conundrum that's recently been on my mind. More specifically, has been on my mind ever since hearing a particularly soul-shattering sob story from one of the toothless indigents in the parking lot concerning an old co-worker of his and my father's who used to install and maintain the incredibly powerful industrial saw blades used at the now-defunct novelty hat factory. So, are you ready, father? Are you willing to put your dogmatic proficiency to the test and give this little moral quandary your best shot? Okay, here goes. According to Catholic doctrine, to the best of your knowledge, in the eyes of the Lord, post-Vatican II, is phone sex considered a sin? Right, of course. Sure, Father, I hear you. But now consider the following situation. A married couple, married before God and family and invited guests in the Catholic Church. The couple, by pretty much anyone's estimation, are model Catholics. They're in the pews every Sunday. They're tithing 10%. They're doing Ave Marias and Our Fathers and Glory Bees and checkout lines and during lunch breaks and after step aerobics and on public transportation. In their free time, the couple volunteer at halfway houses and soup kitchens. They donate canned goods to the victims of meteorological tragedies and sing Holy, Holy, Holy and Salve Regina and Were You There When They Crucified My Lord in flowing white robes and the church choir. They abide by all ten out of ten commandments. They believe in one God and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and they engage in sexual intercourse only in the church-sanctioned orifices and only with each other and always without the sinful conception-preventing aid of prophylactics. They know the apostles and Nicene creeds. They think Mel Gibson is misunderstood. Basically, they're your prototypical, uncanonized, suburban, working-class saints. But then, there's an accident. Again, in the interest of not getting too graphic, Father, I'll spare you the details, but, in short, an industrial saw blade is involved, as is lots of blood, as is a rather atypical variety of amputation, and the end result is that the male member of the couple is no longer anatomically capable of conceiving children. So, now, under church doctrine, any sexual contact between the husband and his beloved, faithful, unbelievably supportive and comforting and understanding wife is automatically a sin. Why? Because, due to the accident, any sexual act the couple commits cannot possibly result in the creation of new life. Therefore, sin. Meaning, confessions will need to be made. Meaning, prayers of forgiveness will need to be offered meaning an extra Lincoln or Hamilton or Jackson will need to be stuffed in the collection basket, just to be safe. Well, obviously, both the husband and the wife are not too happy about this. Clearly, even after saying a few dozen Our Fathers and Ave Marias and Glory Bees and asking the Lord for guidance and grace, they find themselves in somewhat of a theological pickle. The husband and his wife are both very much still in love with each other, very much still crazy about one another, 
This despite the stress of the accident, the resulting emotional trauma, the remnant scars and pain and unsightly mutilation and disfigurement, but they are now severely limited in their options of physically expressing said crazy mutilation-surviving love. Kissing is just not enough. Holding hands, tender caresses, warm cocoon-like embraces, nice but still not enough. But now, consider this. The husband and his wife call each other up on the phone. Your standard AT&T plan, Verizon plan, Sprint, Nextel, T-Mobile, etc. They call each other up on the phone in separate rooms of the house and describe, in graphic detail, making passionate, primal, uninhibited love. They recount insertions, penetrations, frictions, lubrications, they elucidate positions, angles, engorgements, thrusts. They narrate the movement of their hands, fluttering hungrily over one another's naked skin, of their tongues, licking and flicking each other's nipples, navels, thighs, of their legs, kicking and dancing and bracing with each rhythmic pelvic beat, their ecstasy crescendoing to forte, to fortissimo, to fortississimo, to fortississimo, Italian for effing loud, father, and then, just as their detailed and breathless play-by-play -play reaches its febrile, high-decibel, orgasmic peak, they dictate conception. The husband's sperm, released at last, swimming millions strong in an ovarian sea. The wife's eggs, lying in wait, each one urging, pick me, pick me, pick me. Over the phone, the husband and wife depict fertilization, the formation of a zygote, mitosis. They describe the division of cells, the formation of a soul, the creation of human life. They are moved to tears, their skin shines with a bright postcoital glow. They verbalize the most profound expression possible of their undying, devout, heterosexual love. But, again, no life has actually been created. Their hot and heavy depictions of engorgements, thrusts, strokes, eruptions, etc. have all been, essentially, for naught. So, Father, I now ask you, in this particular instance, with the model Catholic couple, with the husband debilitated by his horrifying and humiliating and manhood-compromising accident, and his wife struggling desperately to reassure her husband that she still wants him, and still needs him, and still loves him just as much as she ever did before the factory machinery took from him what can never be returned. Phone sex. Is it a sin? Okay, that does seem to be the consensus among all you boys in black. So, anyway, Maxine and I tried phone sex, but it didn't really work as I had hoped. For one thing, it was always way more ridiculous than erotic, as Maxine tended to adopt foreign accents, use the names of Republican U.S. Senators as general euphemisms, tell me how badly she wanted me in the voice of Jimmy Stewart, Catherine Hepburn, Groucho Marx. Now, don't get me wrong, I loved Maxine's sense of humor. I loved to hear her laugh, loved to see her face light up like a five-year-old's at Christmas, loved to see her white teeth shining like polished chrome inside her expansive, ear-to-ear -ear smile. 
but sometimes a guy just wants his long-distance girlfriend to talk dirty to him without referring to his genitalia as Senator Dick Luger, Republican, Indiana. Sometimes a guy wants his girlfriend to send him erotic instant messages without asking, what's the emoticon for oh god, uh-huh, or yeah, 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 or ooh, baby, faster, harder. So instead, I had to resort to solitary fantasy, lying in bed, late at night, alone, imagining Maxine and me intertwined in the back seat of her daddy's shark, every night, before falling asleep, after an endless day of how may I help you, and are you ready to order, and would you like the fresh strawberries or the warm fruit compote with whipped topping, I would curl up beneath my sheets, close my eyes, and conjure the radio still on tuned to everyone's soft rock favorites, the smell and taste of spearmint, the goosebumps of denuded skin, the pliability of upholstered leather. I still remembered, still remember, our first time like it was yesterday, both of us nervous, both of us fumbling, trembling, self-conscious, artless, woefully unproficient in the necessary physical maneuvers, and yet, even still, our first time is perfect. Maxine's body, circus contorted in the cramped Oldsmobile interior. Her voice, strained and staccato, emitting pleasured moans, purrs, gasps. The windows fog up, and the radio plays, stuck in the middle with you, and the upholstered leather rhythmically squeaks at a faster and faster BPM. House to trance to hardcore to grindcore to gabber, electronic music genres, father. Envision glow sticks and or DJs with headphones on one ear and or recreational drug use. And then, all too soon, it's over. And yet, not over. Maxine, still draped on top of me, smelling sweetly of spearmint. The radio, still on, cash register sound effects indicating a commercial break. This is mostly what I think of, in bed, alone, at night. This is where my mind mostly lingers. The calm after the storm, the stillness, the silence, the catching of breath, the perfect circles traced faintly on each other's skin, the audible heartbeats, the soft rock favorites, Maxine's hair, previously perfectly coiffed, wild, untamed, distressed, her diaphragm expanding and contracting, her dark chocolate skin covered in a film of sweat, the surprise, my mouth still open and eyes still wide with amazement, that Maxine had said yes, had followed me into her daddy's Oldsmobile's back seat, had allowed me to lay her down on upholstered leather and press her chocolate skin against doors and windows and seat buckles and do things to her I'd previously only seen being done on the channels that came in snowy and illicitly on my family's living room TV. The cool down, the quiet, Steely Dan, Hall and Oates, Harry Shapin, Boz Skaggs, the afterglow, the aftermath, after the gold rush. The era of good feelings, in retrospect, didn't have a clear expiration date. No Black Thursday, no Pearl Harbor, no sinking of the Lusitania or the Titanic or the Maine. Rather, a lull in postal correspondence, a neglected email inbox, an abandonment of instant chats, 
a slow escalation of phone calls going straight to voicemail. If you held a gun to my head and asked me to give the good feelings in an approximate time of death, I'd probably have to say mid-October. When Maxine was preparing for midterm exams, secluding herself monastically in the library, shutting out all external stimuli and communications and contact to focus on modest proposals, paradises lost, iambic pentameter. At least, this is what I told myself at the time. I told myself I had to be understanding, supportive, patient. I had to appreciate that Maxine had won a scholarship to such a prestigious private institution and can see that her studies needed to be her primary concern. I told myself that Christmas break would be here before I knew it, and the Douglas furs would soon be sold out of the Surgeon General's parking lot, and Maxine would soon be back in California, back in the shark, back in my arms, and I wouldn't have to conjure her body in my bedroom anymore. I wouldn't have to play my voicemail to hear her voice. I wouldn't have to do anything except clock out, depressurize my spacesuit, and step into the Neil Armstrong's parking lot, and there where now the indigents sleep on traffic islands and aimlessly circle with shopping carts and sing there is a balm in Gilead and voraciously devour their kills. There my Maxine would be. Christmas time came and with it Neil Armstrong's own special brand of Yuletide cheer. The soda fountain and cardboard Buzz Aldrin decked with boughs of holly. Framed photos of Neil Armstrong and faux fur and red polyester, herding reindeer on a suburban Wichita roof. Table salt and shredded coconut dumped on a lucky customer every time White Christmas played on the jukebox. Nativity scenes featuring the Apollo 11 crew in place of the three wise men, bearing gifts of pancakes, hash browns, and maple syrup to the infant Christ. While our town's Christian faithful counted down the days until their savior's birth by sequentially opening the cardboard doors of their advent calendars, I awaited the glory of the coming of Maxine by notching permanent marker X's on my photocopy of the Neil Armstrong's shift schedule, each crossed out rectangle bringing me one cylindrical inch closer to the sweet square of Maxine's return. Those last X'd out days, father, were pure murder. I dropped untold trays of buttermilk pancakes, spilled untold gallons of bottomless coffee. I bungled orders and served pigs in a blanket to cardboard Neil Armstrong and routinely collided with patrons, fellow servers, our hostess Patsy, and walls. But how was I supposed to focus on drink orders, salad dressing preferences, tray equilibrium, and basic physical orientation, father, with Maxine only days away from pulling into the parking lot and the shark, days away from blaring soft rock favorites as I stepped out of the restaurant interior, from playing the ostinato rhythm of Ravel's bolero on her car horn, from rolling her window down and flashing me her gorgeous, effulgent, spearmint-smacking smile. It is true, she had barely been communicating with me for the last two months. She had been returning only a small fraction of my phone calls, had verified her date of arrival only after my seventh or eighth interrogative email, had been completely unavailable for any online sessions of sweet, emoticon-punctuated I am to love. What's the emoticon for physically and mentally incapacitated by extreme sexual frustration? But that didn't necessarily mean that she wouldn't be excited to see me. 
that she wouldn't scream as soon as I stepped into the parking lot, wouldn't rejoicingly activate the windshield wipers and emergency flashing lights, wouldn't blare bolero on the car horn until I was finally snugly Christmas-wrapped in her awaiting arms. She didn't blare bolero on the car horn until I was finally snugly Christmas-wrapped in her awaiting arms. Actually, she didn't show up at all. I stepped outside after by far the most syrup-stained and collision-filled and order-butchering shift yet, and instead of seeing my lovely Maxine, I saw parked Hyundais, Douglas firs decorated with tinsel and NASA ephemera, the three wise men bearing breakfast to the baby Jesus in our traffic island Bethlehem. Was I disappointed? Sure. Crushed? Of course. Overcome by a strong urge to wrestle the nativity shepherds and angels and wise men to the ground and bash in their plastic skulls with Buzz Aldrin's heavy Christmas commemorating jug of maple syrup? And bash in their plastic skulls with Buzz Aldrin's heavy Christmas commemorating jug of maple syrup? I would posit, yes. But I did not wrestle shepherds or angels or the crew of Apollo 11 to the ground. I did not bash in plastic skulls with delicious Vermont-harvested maple syrup. Instead, I figured, maybe Maxine's flight got delayed. Maybe the shark had been having engine trouble, or Maxine's daddy needed it for errands, or, in my feverish, punch-drunk, syrup-spilling excitement over her imminent return, I had never even told her to pick me up. Remember, father, our communication had been very, very spotty those last two months, after the era of good feelings had been superseded by the era of walking with great force into walls. Also, there had been all that walking with great force into walls. Who knows what I had forgotten to mention in my flurries of unanswered emails, my one-way stream-of-consciousness postal correspondence, my rambling, unreturned voicemail messages. Who knows the neurological effects of all those resounding impacts and blackouts and concussions, my spheroidal dome helmet apparently offering little in the way of wall versus cranium protection. After waiting for Maxine for an hour, all the while conscientiously resisting the urge to place an inquisitory phone call to her parents' house, using Neil Armstrong's phone for personal use, a big, bold-faced no-no in the employee handbook, I decided to walk to Maxine's natal home in my spacesuit, spheroidal dome helmet and all, because it was very cold out, and my civilian clothes weren't adequate for the two-and-a-half-mile trip. A more astute man would have waited for the bus, but I wasn't feeling particularly astute, and I wasn't feeling like spending another thirty minutes waiting at the nearest bus stop, surrounded by local Christmas carolers singing festive holiday favorites, as my mind and body burned for Maxine. On the way to Maxine's, I passed the Kentucky Fried Chicken, not yet abandoned, not yet occupied by spurned Russian mail-order brides, dreaming of childhood summers in Kaliningrad while huddled together for warmth around the KFC's out-of-service deep fryer. I passed the Novelty Hat Factory, not yet shut down, still churning out inflatable pith helmets, exploding pillboxes, fortune-telling toques. I passed blinking Christmas lights strung on Douglas firs, roof lines, picket fences, Doric and Corinthian columns, colorfully irradiating holiday cheer and merrily sapping the power grid. I heard jingle bells. I heard a cappella renditions of Silent Night and O Little Town of Bethlehem. 
I saw a fat man in a Santa outfit whiz by in a Volkswagen Jetta. I saw the shark in Maxine's driveway, the light on in her childhood bedroom, the red ribbon Christmas wreath hung welcomely on her front door as I approached her house, scaled her front steps, and removed my helmet, observing my reflection in the tented visor, making last-second adjustments to my hair. Somewhere, on another street, carolers were singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. A neighbor greeted another neighbor with Ho Ho Ho. I held my helmet in my hands, in front of my rapidly beating heart, and exhaled a visible plume of condensation into the chilly air. My breath dissipated. I re-examined my hair. I made a mental note to visit a barber. I knocked. When the door finally swung open, I was greeted not by Maxine, but by her daddy. Her daddy had a bottle of Miller Lite in his hand and wore a crewneck sweatshirt that indicated its size and big block letters on the front. XXL, it said, a wonderful feature for anyone too lazy to simply check the tag. Maxine's daddy had been a helicopter door gunner in Vietnam and was now an elementary school gym teacher at the school where I, but not Maxine, had attended. A school that in those days was called Custer, but is now called Sitting Bull. In fourth grade, he had discontinued dodgeball, claiming it had caused too many injuries, but those of us then in Ms. Burston's class knew it was really because he had suffered a vivid NAM flashback after an errant dodgeball had narrowly missed his head, causing him to spend the rest of our game curled up in a fetal position against the wall and muttering garbled nonsense about somebody named Charlie. Maxine's daddy had never been my number one biggest fan. I'd earned a three-year string of needs improvements in third to fifth grade phys ed, and he clearly still held all those times I forgot to bring my athletic shorts or failed to climb the gym rope against me, as if he believed that a boy who couldn't hit a three-point shot or execute an overhand volleyball serve by the age of ten would never become a man. Once Maxine and I started officially going out my junior year, her daddy made it abundantly clear that he thought she could do better. He would, for instance, scan the local paper's high school football coverage every Sunday and try to persuade Maxine to date whichever quarterback had the most favorable touchdown-to-interception ratio or whichever offensive lineman had the most formidable nom de guerre. Say, Maxine, what do you think of this 350-pound senior the papers refer to as the immovable beast? Maxine's daddy could bench press 300 pounds, squat 475, and deadlift 550. He could shoot the thin edge of a playing card from 90 feet away and was trained in the rudiments of jiu-jitsu, kung fu, and taekwondo. He had, during the war, been given the nickname Blood by the men in his unit, and he once told me, during a family dinner at Outback Steakhouse, that he knew 27 different ways to kill a man with his bare hands. In short, Maxine's daddy was not the kind of guy you wanted unexpectedly happening upon you and his daughter, mid-coitus, in the back seat of his beloved Oldsmobile. Mitchell, said Maxine's daddy, what a pleasant surprise. It had been nearly four months since I last set foot in Maxine's house. That last time, in August, Maxine's parents had been out on errands, and I tried to get Maxine to sleep with me one final time before she went out east. But she said, no, that's not on the itinerary, and then she showed me the itinerary, and it said, pack, and so we packed. In a perfect world, father, 
my last precious moments with Maxine in the flesh before she set off for her first semester at Ivy Covered U would have been far more cinematic, rolling around passionately on a white sand beach, for example, lying together on the roof of my old elementary school, Custer slash Sitting Bull, watching air traffic and shooting stars, taking one last dance to In a Sentimental Mood as sung by Ella Fitzgerald, crooning sultrily on the Neil Armstrong's jukebox as our hostess, Patsy, turned the lights down low. But I think we've already established that we don't live in a perfect world. Toothless indigence, postmarked brides, Hyundai rental suicides, etc. So instead, I helped Maxine pack. Instead, the only undergarments I touched were unworn and detergent-scented and folded neatly. Instead, I accompanied Maxine to the airport and held her hand tenderly to the security line and watched her recede from me tragically up the airport escalator, en route to her bright, financially-aided future in the distant east, as I remained firmly entrenched in the declining west, side by side with her proud parents, who made no secret of resenting and detesting me. Instead, I adhered closely to the itinerary. Maxine, screeched Maxine's mama, also not my number one biggest fan, from somewhere inside the house. Nice spacesuit, said Maxine's daddy, finishing off the last with a Miller Lite. All is calm, all is bright, sang the carolers, with voices, angelic and pure. It started to snow. Santa whizzed by in a geoprism. Somewhere, for some reason, there were sleigh bells. Maxine appeared, and her stricken face told all. I have a confession to make, Father. I know this isn't the sort of booth you usually do this kind of thing in, with the ketchup bottles and the salt shakers and the NutraSweet packets and such, but I always clam up in churches, so I guess this will have to do. Is that okay? Wonderful. You're a saint, Father. A real pal. God bless you. My confession is this. There's a fleeting moment, a half second or less, when I step into the parking lot at the end of my shift and expect to see Maxine waiting for me. I expect her honking horn, her wedding white smile. I expect the shark, repainted, restored, with wheels. Also, I expect to find the novelty hat-wearing indigents in the parking lot gone, no longer panhandling, no longer scrounging for animal carcasses and change, for they're at the factory, newly reopened, returning them to the workforce, to their homes, to the consumer economy. Across the street, the mail-order brides visit the post office arm-in-arm with their husbands, smiles on their faces, feet unbound by packing tape, and the family of four that once lived in our ventilation system walks proudly to the bank to apply for a mortgage on their new home. At the tar pits, Hyundai after Hyundai emerges from the bubbling pitch, and the factory workers and their grieving spouses, once thought long dead, return their cars to the rental agency, pay a small fee for cleanup, and stroll down to the street to their loved ones, whistling the melodies of soft rock favorites of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And when the next day comes, when I'm back to work, in my pressurized spacesuit, Bill waltzes in. Hiya, Patsy. What's new? and sits down in his favorite booth with the cardboard crew of Apollo 11 and orders the mission control special, and my mother and father waltz in, literally, 
my father effortlessly dancing with my mother across the Neil Armstrong's carpeting as the jukebox plays the Blue Danube, my parents' eyes full of life and of love, and the man in the adjacent booth, waiting alone, about to order for his absent wife, says, well look at that, just in time, and his wife sits down across from him, leans over the table for a kiss, and says, I'll have the Neil Armstrong signature sampler with the vegetable soup and the baked potato. And when their food comes, they savor it relishingly together. And when the jukebox plays Astro Piazzolla, my parents break out into a lustful tango. And when the first ray of sunlight kisses the rejuvenated land, the local birds sing arresting melodies, and life is ever more blissful and sweet. But here's the thing. A man needs hope, father, if he's gonna make it in this life, that's for darn sure. But he also needs to stay realistic. He needs to know when to say when, when to let go, when to concede defeat, when to finally move on. Because if he doesn't, if he's the sort of man who, for example, never gives up, never surrenders, never loses hope, never gives in to repeated reproofs, it's over, please stop. How can I make myself any more clear? Well, he can be driven to do some rather regrettable things. What kinds of things? Say, like, for instance, voicemail harassment, guilt tripping, e-stalking, tear duct activating, spotting his ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend through Neil Armstrong's floor-to-ceiling windows during summer break, and running out into the parking lot in a spacesuit and moon boots to challenge him to a fight. That last one particularly regrettable, since the boyfriend was a promising amateur boxer and easily settled the matter with one blow. But that is neither here nor there. What I want to say is, I feel absolutely terrible about making Maxine cry. I feel awful about automatically pegging her new man as being a bad egg, when it turns out he's a loving brother of two Down Syndrome sufferers, and a two-time local Young Humanitarian of the Year, a Young Humanitarian, as it turns out, with a formidable right hook. Again, neither here nor there. What I want to say is, I'm so sorry, Father, for the pain I've caused, for the trouble I've wrought, for the suffering I've induced. If Maxine were still speaking to me, I'd say to her, you have my blessing. I'd say to her, good job, good work, good for you. I'd say to her, when you think of me, if you think of me, think of me not as I am now, embittered, syrup-stained, alone. But as the boy you asked, one bright, balmy spring day, to pose for a portrait for your freshman art class, the boy who obliged, dutifully, and remained motionless on the school's front lawn, long after the bell indicating the start of classes had rung. The boy who noticed, after you had sketched him, considered him, after you had studied, observed, eyeballed him, that your hands shook, that your milk chocolate eyes narrowed, that your Professor Albert's gum fell out of your mouth and onto your right ankle's bare, beautiful, dark chocolate skin, as you anxiously flipped the sketch pad over and awaited his verdict to see what he thought, if he approved, if he liked how you saw him, I'd say to her, I did. I'd say to her, be happy. I'd say to her, be fruitful and multiply. 
It has been three years since my last confession. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I'll have your drink coming right up. Hello, thank you for calling Neil Armstrong's Giant Leap for Mankind Pancake House. How may I help you? Don't 